From the team at Splash, I'm Billy Bonson, and this is True Stories of Field Marketing, our podcast where we dive deep into the world of field marketing. You get the inside scoop from the best of the best in the industry, discussing the lessons they've learned, event strategies that work, and their personal secrets to success. On this episode of True Stories of Field Marketing, we're joined by Natasha Streit, who is the uh, Director of Field Marketing at Recharge Payments. What a fun conversation this was. I've actually known Natasha for four years, dating back to our time at Anaplan. Natasha was gracious enough to take us through her career journey from her earliest roles to how she eventually wound up as a field marketing leader, first at, at Anaplan and, of course, now at Recharge Payments. And so, of course, because of our time together, we shared some stories from our time there at Anaplan, including some Broadway-inspired event performances we each had. You won't want to miss that. I think those are some fun stories that we shared. We also discussed the impact of the last 20 months, specifically how the pandemic has affected the work and role of field marketers, highlighted successful, and in many, in some cases, I don't want to say many, but it's, and in some cases, successful, not so successful field programs, and providing her insights into how the role will eventually evolve upon the return of full-time events. Let's enjoy this episode of True Stories of Field Marketing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of True Stories of, of Field Marketing. True Stories of Field Marketing is a show about the lives, learnings, and secrets of some of the most experienced and successful field marketers in the business. These are the heroes who tame chaos, craft experiences, and get big results. Today's episode is going to be about reimagining the role of field marketing in a post-pandemic world. And I couldn't have a better guest for today's show, my former colleague, Natasha Streit, who is the Director of Field Marketing at Recharge Payments. Natasha, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. We haven't talked in like, at least on Zoom. I shouldn't say we haven't talked. We haven't talked on Zoom in, I mean, since I left Anaplan, right? Like two yeah. and a well, half Other years than ago. text messages. Yeah, here or there. But yes, yeah, but it's been a while. Been a while. What's been going on? Update me. What have you been up to? What's life like? I know that you were before this new role at Recharge Games, you were at Entrust Data Card. So I'd love to hear about what's been going on in the in the recent times. Yeah. So I did. I spent the last two and a half years at Entrust. They recently went through a brand change. They were Entrust Data Card, now they're Entrust, which is actually a digital security company based out of Minnesota, which is where I, I live and work. And it was an awesome experience. I was the director of their America's Field Marketing team there for two and a half years and built the team and the strategy from scratch and then went through COVID with everybody else, had to turn around and work from home and pivot. And in the you know this and the life of a field marketer, that's a major change because that is mm -hmm. that is a big shift from what we typically or what folks typically think field marketing is about, which is events, right? So yep. big shift there. And then just got a great new opportunity to build a new strategy and a new global team. And so I took it. So here I am at Recharge Payments. Very, very exciting. We're going to get into a, a number of different topics today. I have a litany of discussion points that I'd love for us to hit on. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about, about our relationship, how we know each other. I'll start and then you chime in. We worked together at Anaplan from at least when I started from December 2017 through I think February of 2019. So I was there with you pre and post IPO, we managed the America's field marketing team, which was a team of, I think, five field marketers across the US, if, if I'm not mistaken. And those five field marketers were supporting, 
how many enterprise reps? Over 100 enterprise reps across the US? Is that yeah, accurate? Like 150, 150, yeah. It did grow to that. I know like the way they are structured now is pretty intense. They have a serious sales and marketing structure now at Anaplan. But yeah, so we've known each other now for what's going on, I guess it's going to be going on four years. Did you interview me? I'm pretty sure you did interview me. I did. I totally interviewed you. Yes. And you probably gave me the, the big thumbs down, but they still hired me. I was like, I can't work with this guy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> overruled, overruled. But yeah, we had a we had a fun time there. It was an interesting time for us to be there. We, you were there a little bit before me and a little bit after me, but we were there at a pretty significant inflection point. They they had made a number of different hires prior to my joining, and right when I joined, and right after I joined, that was obviously shifting and focusing specifically on um, an eventual IPO, and which. We both got to be a part of of that, which was just a fun experience in, in October of 2019. But beyond the IPO, we had a we had a really successful team there. We had a team that did a lot of cool and creative events and experiences and cool and creative campaigns for their regions. And just very proud of the work that team did. And I think we played a small part in that, but I, I do want to make sure we give credit to that team there that that had a just a significant impact on you know driving pipeline for the field sales teams they they were working with. Yeah. I mean, talk about some creative thinkers on that team. Lots of innovation, things I wouldn't have even thought of that they were like, hey, we should try this. And it was really impressive. And, you know, that's the way to get to any salesperson's heart, right? Right. Is is the fun events and the fun things that you can plan for them that make their clients and prospects kind of go like, whoa, this is super cool. And I can't miss this. So, yeah. Yes. We're going to come back to that in a little bit because there's a lot lot of thoughts about what that's going to look like coming out of this pandemic. But, you know, let's take four or five steps back. Let's talk about how you how you started in field marketing. How did you, I guess, land in a, what I would define as a field marketing specific role? What did that look like? I'm sure you had experiences prior to maybe a, a field marketing defined role, but how did you wind up becoming a field marketer? Yeah, it was actually kind of happenstance. Anaplan was my first field marketing role, like with the field marketing title. So right. I have actually partnered with sales my entire career through different functionalities. And a title is one thing, but the job was very similar to other jobs I'd done. So, but traditionally always partnering with sales and really loving that aspect of my work. And that's just because that's my personality. Like I am a straight shooter, I guess you'd call it. And a lot mm-hmm. of people tend to tell me that I, I don't <laughs> act like I have been born and raised in Minnesota because, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of the passive aggressive gene kind of missed me a little right. bit. And so sales is always a place where you can go to get the good and the bad in all of its glory. And it's all kind of right there in front of your eyes. So, you know, sales reps are just like who they are. They're pay for play. They know what they're doing. They're trying to make money for the company. And so they're going to tell you when they like something and they're going to tell you when they don't. And it's not a lot of the political hullabaloo that surrounds some of the other positions in corporate America. So it was really refreshing to me to kind of hone in on that. And so when I started interviewing for the Anaplan job and I was like, wow, this is kind of like, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do. Then even moving into Entrust, it completely solidified that I'm kind of, I'm home. I'm here in my niche. Like I love what I do. So that's great. It's funny. I have a very similar story. I think the Anaplan role when I came aboard as the senior manager for the East was specifically the first time the role was defined as field marketing, but I had been like, just like you've been doing the role by another name and working specifically and directly with sales to drive pipeline. And so when it came to pass that the role popped up, it was just, it was too good to pass up. It was just a perfect opportunity for me. Talking a little about sales there. Do you have an early memory that 
looking back now, makes sense that that you would land in field marketing? Something from your previous job experiences or specific experience in in your work that made you go like, hmm, that's why I'm a field marketer nowadays. Yeah. So I can actually give this all up to somebody in particular, and his name is Jed Quato. And he was the director of sales at Thomson Reuters when I was working as a segment marketing manager there. So I was handling all like litigation products for the large law firm segment and working really closely with large law firm clients and customers and a sales team that was targeted just for large law firms. And while I was there, I happenstanced into a social media specific kind of role where I was teaching our sales team how to build their LinkedIn profiles for prospecting. So how do you better utilize that tool to help you get out, build relationships, meet people digitally in, in the world, et cetera. It was my partnership with Jed, which, I mean, he ended up leaving the company and moving to another organization. And he actually ended up hiring me and flying me down for a sales conference at his new company to do this LinkedIn presentation that I had done. And it was my kind of first experience working with a salesperson where I was like, this is the bee's knees. Like, I love this partnership. I love building this. I like speaking to sales because they really appreciate that off the cuff, like presentation style, which is really in my wheelhouse. And so he was the one where I was like, this is awesome. And I love partnering with sales. And I do give credit to a few of the other salespeople. And if they ever listen to this, which they won't, they, <laughs> they will be like, why isn't she mentioning me? So there's more than just Jed, but he was, he was the real jumpstart for me to go. I want to do this because I certainly don't want to sell. Like that was <laughs> the other option, right? You could be in sales. And I was like, no, I don't want to no. be in sales. No, no. <laughs> Did you ever sell? I did some selling like early on in my career. I was so bad at it. It was just not, it's not my personality, not my skill set. I, like, I admire the work they do because it's not easy work. But did you ever have an opportunity to, or like thrown into an opportunity to sell? Twice, but not really. I canvassed for the Sierra Club, which wasn't really selling. I made it one day canvassing a Maplewood, which is a suburb of, of Minnesota, Maplewood neighborhood. I got doors slammed in my face four times and I was like, I'm never doing this again. Yeah. And then I answered a newspaper ad like a year later that looked really promising. It was like $16 an hour. And then I went and it was like selling knives door to door. And I was like, no, I'm not going to sell knives door to door. So I didn't even <laughs> try that one out. I didn't even make it. <laughs> the door. Your potential career path was a door to door knife sale. Nothing wrong I mean, with that, obviously. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. But yeah, I, I got to be honest, I don't see you as a door-to-door sales, <laughs> salesperson selling knives. So glad you chose still marketing. You lead teams, you've led teams, you're going to be leading teams in the future. What does a day in the life of a field marketing leader look like for you specifically? I really think that in any position that you're in, regardless of whether it's field marketing, the second you become a team leader, your job becomes more about your team. And making them feel successful, feel supported, removing roadblocks. So it's not necessarily the most glamorous job. I think people think you move up the ladder and it's amazing and you get all these perks. And it's like, really? You have way more administrative work to do. And, you know, like you're approving people's expense reports and PTO and, you know, that kind of thing. And when you say removing roadblocks, that means a lot of times you're dealing with the sticky situations and trying to help with that influence. But leading a team, in my mind, is really about making sure they're successful. And that's not always meaning like that I'm giving pats on the back. It's, I mean, a lot of times it is constructive feedback. It's, it's making sure they're resilient. 
I mean, the one skill, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, to be successful as a field marketer is resilience. I mean, it's not an easy job. And in, and in a lot of cases, I think it's almost one of the most difficult in marketing to have, to be honest with you, just yep. because it requires somebody to be a jack of all trades. It's hard to be not an expert in one thing, but to be really good at dealing with all these different things. And then you add in sales, which is you either love it or you don't. Yep. What are the skills or talents or experiences, I guess, for that matter, that are essential to being successful in field marketing? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's all about personality. So Mm -hmm. I think you can teach the skills of field marketing to just about anybody, assuming that they are wanting to learn it and they're passionate about it, right? So at a core, somebody has to enjoy that event planning piece, right? Whether it's virtual or whether it's in person, there is a big part of the job that comes from understanding how to translate the needs of the salesperson with the benefits of the product and the audience in the market, you know, into something that's going to help to drive interest for the organization. But mostly it's about personality. It's somebody who's driven and who can think strategically that resiliency is key. It's really about being able to pivot. And then there is a core piece that's coming up that's really important for field marketing the more that I see marketing organizations grow. And it's that analysis piece, right? So it's not just doing the event. It's understanding before you do the event, what do you need from that event? You're looking at your pipeline, your pipeline goals. What do you need to hit those goals? And then working backwards to make sure that you build an event strategy that helps you to meet those goals. So often we see that event planner mindset as a very reactive mindset. So somebody's coming to you and saying, I want to do this. And you're going, okay, let's do it. But you don't, you do that without knowing what is going to provide to you on the back end and whether or not that's going to justify the amount of money that you're spending on the event. So at the end of the day, You're always looking for ROI, however you determine that in your organization. And so there's a key component from a field marketing mindset of really not just doing it and executing it flawlessly, but also understanding what happened on the back end and being able to translate that to marketing and sales leadership in a way that makes sense, right? And then pivoting based on what you find out from that. Is it working? Isn't it working? What would you change up next time? Like, so it's all about this kind of like long term strategy play, I would say. Yeah. It's like a continuous feedback loop too, I think in in many respects. And I I love the tag on resiliency. I think that's so critical because the way I've described and been describing what a field marketer does on a day-to-day basis is they act as a chief liaison, an advocate between field sales and the rest of the marketing team, the rest of the marketing functions. That's a tough job. That's a difficult job to do because you are balancing the demands of sales, the requests of sales, and comparing and contrasting that with the go-to-market strategies or the marketing campaigns or strategies that are in market. And sometimes they don't align. And then you have to be the bad guy and go back to potentially sales who are basically your biggest advocates in the organization beyond you know your, your direct supervisor or whatnot, um, and say, we can't do this. Now, try not to come from a position of no most of the time, but You try to obviously kind of coach them and direct them to, this is what we're doing. Is there something else that would make sense that aligns with this? So yeah, the resiliency thing is is so critical in my opinion. I'm glad that you you brought that up because I think it's a underrated characteristic of the role for sure. Yeah, 
Yeah. This podcast is called True Stories of, of Field Marketing. I have to ask, I'm going to ask two questions about this. So one is pre-COVID, one will be post-COVID. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But pre-COVID, and I have a story in mind, and I'm, I'm going to see if you're going to tell it. But And then I, if you don't tell them, I'm going to queue up anyway. <laughs> okay. Are there any pre-COVID standout field marketing stories that you'd like to share? I know of one that I don't think I was at Anaplan when you did this, but I know it was done at Anaplan. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. If we're talking about the same thing, share that one. If not, I'm going to cue you up again. Just ask you to tell the story directly, but go ahead. I'm going to get fined by Lin-Manuel Miranda. For it's this possible. One. It's very possible. <laughs> <laughs> so I was executing a field marketing event at, at the Monarch Club, which is similar. It's right. This really super fancy hotel resort. And the conference was for executives. So this idea is like, hey, you know, executives are going to come, we're going to wine them, we're going to dine them. We don't have very many sponsors. It's not a typical trade show, but you're there to kind of meet these people and they're really highly influential in their organizations. And so Anaplan had sponsored this event, I want to say three or four years before I happenstanced upon having to manage through it. And what they do instead of really having a ton of sponsorship messaging or like all of their panel discussions they had during the event were all thought leadership. They weren't led by sponsors. So what they said was they do a sponsor show at the end of like the last night with cocktails and each sponsor gets like five minutes to get up on stage and do something that reflects their product. And creativity is encouraged, highly encouraged. Let me pause you real quick. This was a room of how many people and, and what levels? Like 150, like sea levels. Okay, keep going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> keep going. So it was funny because, you know, some of the sponsors got up and just did the video. And in the past, Anaplan had put together a video and shown a video that was literally just like our product features and sets. And I was like, this will not do. This is a show and you're going to put up this like tepid video? Like, no. So I took the reins and I spent a good amount of time. I'm not going to share just exactly how much time, but a good amount of time rewriting the lyrics of the title Hamilton song from Hamilton that tees up who Hamilton is. I made them about Anaplan. And so I did a four verse song about Alexander Hamilton, who <laughs> implemented Anaplan into his organization and saved the company time and money and, and straightened everything out. And I, not only did I do all of that work, but I then performed it and recruited one of our director of products, who's by the way, still at Anaplan and one of the sales executives to also perform in that skit with me. And the funny part was neither of them had good singing voices. So they were not actors or actors by trade. I had done a lot of singing in theater in my way youth. So I was a little bit more comfortable, but it doesn't matter. I mean, singing that thing live in front of 150 sea levels was terrifying. However, it did happen to live on in infamy, as you remember. And as many of the people came up to me after the executives of these high growth companies were like, that was freaking amazing. Like, and I got a standing ovation. So it was all worth it in the end. I'm at a loss of words because I, I've obviously <laughs> seen this before. And I, when I think I saw it, I was at a loss of words. But when you retell the story, I'm still at a loss of words. It's so, it's so good for a variety of reasons. 
Yeah, we talked about resiliency. The guts you showed to do that is just incredible. That story is going to be hard to top. If we do this podcast for 100 years, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to talk about that story. Well, I mean, let's talk about Les Miserables. Are you going to share your story? I mean, technically, that was for an internal audience, but still quite impressive in my mind. Yes, it's for an internal audience. I'm going to get to why I think it was important too in the grand scheme of things. But this was for an internal audience. It's for our sales kickoff in Las Vegas, was it? This was the year before we yeah. went public. So this is like one of like the final kind of hurrahs before you're a publicly traded company. And it was sales kickoff. I was two months into the job as part of our sales kickoff. They have a final night party. I should find out if they still do this or not, but they had gotten into a cadence of doing lip sync karaoke as part of like the final night event. And each, I wouldn't say team, but each people from the company, persons from the company can go up on stage and perform. You kind of submit your topic and you go up there and you perform and then there's judges and the judges just so happen to be the executive team at the company, the CEO and CMO and et cetera, et cetera. So we're performing in front of 350, 400 people, right? Am I exaggerating? I mean, we had a lot of no, sales. No, it was a lot. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot. So we were at, I forget the name of the place we had rented out in Las Vegas for the sales kickoff final night party, but it was a lot of people. And so I was new to the New York office. And that's like in the before times that people worked in offices, but I was in the New York office. And so they had done something the year prior, I think as an office, but finished second. And so... Who finished first? Was it was it Russ? Russ Monroe finished first. My, yes. I'm not mistaken. Yes. Doing was it Steven Tyler like Dream On or something yeah. like that? Like yeah. got into mm-hmm. full full regalia. So the team in New York was like, we're not going to lose again. Like obviously, kind of a stereotype here, but the New York team was very competitive and did not want to lose. So the office got together. We like almost like the Avengers going against what's his face Thanos. Russ would be Thanos in this case. We got together, like we're brainstorming ideas for what we were going to do at kickoff as part of the final night events, right? Which was in part of the final events, the karaoke. We came up with doing Les Mis and we lip synced one day more in Les Mis. And so I didn't have, do you remember when we went shopping? <laughs> I had to go out and get clothes. Oh, yes. Do you remember? We had to go well, yes. across like we the went street. To, yes. Ross or whatever. Yeah. yeah, we had to the go across the street. Um, <laughs> and I had to get clothes like that fit like the French Revolution times. And so I was, I forget what, what part Shopping I had. in the women's I, section. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Shopping in the women's mm-hmm. section in Las Vegas on like a Thursday afternoon. Come back. We had been rehearsing all week too, by the way. We took it super seriously. Like people got their parts before we left New York to go to Vegas. We rehearsed all week and we got on stage. Everybody went out, like went nuts. Like we had one sales rep that went like to like a thrift store in Las Vegas to find outfits and brought it back to the team. So we all got dressed up. We all had unique parts in One Day More, which I I have never seen the show on Broadway, but I think it's like the song before the final act or whatever. Am I wrong in saying it brought the house down? It did. It was phenomenal. I'm not like that. I don't, I didn't do theater or anything like like that as a kid. But I was like, this is going to be my opportunity to, to prove my mettle to this team. And I'm working with a bunch of sales reps in Europe. So like, I got to show them I can rise to the occasion. And sure enough, we had like this amazing performance that was standing ovation. We won lip sync karaoke. It was such an awesome, awesome memory. And I think that was probably one of the, ca- uh, probably the catalyst to have a really good run at Anaplan, specifically with that New York office and that team I supported there. So I'm glad you teed that up. But that was a fun memory. We had some, we had some good times there. Yeah. 
Let's go from good times to bad times. Let's talk a little about COVID-19. Obviously, the last year and a half, extremely rough. I don't want to go into everything, but it was rough for a lot of people, difficult from for our profession, but compared to others, it's night and day. I don't want to ever, you know, we're not on the same level as frontline workers and, and the like. But it was it was been it was a difficult year and a half in our profession. And thankfully we both kept our jobs throughout the entire time frame. But it was a little bit of a challenge. And I guess my question to you would be, in what ways did COVID kind of intersect with your career and your field of work as as a field marketer? You know, how did things change for you? I guess both professionally and personally, we kind of talked a little bit about before, but I would love to just dive a little bit deeper into that. Professionally, moving to virtual events and trying to find your way in this world in virtual events is a big shift for field marketing. So in general, when you think of field marketing, you think of, oh, they're, they're your event planners. Now, honestly, field marketing does a lot more than that. And we can do a lot more than that if the company has the right resources set up to be able to help do that. When I think of a field marketer and their role in the organization, it really is in that strategic execution place, right? So mm-hmm. we touch the customer, we touch the prospect, we're the closest to driving, I think, pipeline at a very intimate level, which in my mind is probably part of the reason why I like being in field marketing so much because I can do an event and I can see how it generates money for the company or potential money for the company, like one-to-one, which not a lot of marketing functions can say. I'm, I'm putting articles out there and we're getting impressions. Okay, great. I'm so glad that people are clicking on your email. I mean, like I, th- I think there's... <laughs> Lots of value to those other positions, but like we driving love, pipeline. Yeah, we, we love, love our other, all areas of marketing. We love them all. all areas just of marketing make sure are amazing. <laughs> and in many ways, but, they're better than us. Let's just let you know. We, yes. we want to make sure that's very clear. But yes, but yes. keep going. I'm sorry. So, for my team at Entrust, we work with a couple of different types of businesses. So, we had seven lines of product at my company. Half of those loosely are actually physical hardware products. So it's secure printing for passports, for credit cards, for things like that. So your credit card that you have in your wallet is printed on an antitrust printer, almost guaranteed. We have like 94% market share or something ridiculous like that. Don't quote me on that. That's not a fact finding, but it's pretty much that high. But the other side of our business is digital focus, digital security. So it's SSL, it's PKI, it's authentication. And so when you think about that side of the business, pivoting to digital really made sense. They're a digital, they're a digital segment partner, they're a digital product, like they kind of get the idea of doing the digital event. But the problem is that the hardware segment is very used to doing credit union association shows, money 2020, you know, things like trade, big trade shows, big in-person events. So pivoting to a digital kind of structure for them was a big shift. And then having to figure out a way to still meet people, still capture their interest. You know, I mean, let me just say virtual trade shows. Yeah. I mean, you have some that have better platforms than others, but like, it's hard to engage with people. It's hard to build those relationships, regardless of what business you're in. The best success we had was doing kind of more intimate roundtable events where we were actually asking people questions, getting them to participate with us, finding out the intel, and then following it up with some really perceived ABM kind of campaign follow-up. And those are hard because they're hard to scale. Like you can't do more than 15 people or 20 people because then nobody participates, right? So Mm -hmm. you're doing a lot of these smaller events. And granted, the cost savings is there because you're not spending... $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 on a trade show, but you're having to do so many of them that you really have to find that repeatable, scalable 
process where it's just kind of like click and go, click and go, click and go, click and go. Because if you start to have to try and reinvent the wheel in terms of content or anything, you're six to eight weeks out again. So that was definitely, I think, the biggest pivot for us is how do we get there in a timely manner and start to drive pipeline? And what is it going to take to engage with people? Like, what's the lever? You know, for us, it ended up being lunch and learns, right? So we'll give you Uber Eats. And that is a big driver. Food is always a big driver yep. for people. Yeah, but, food and alcohol too. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. And we did pivot about halfway through to wine and bourbon tastings and the yep. whole bit, you know, <laughs> whatever yep. we needed to do, right? What was the best one? So true story time here. Love to know what was the best virtual event you run? And then I have to ask, we won't say what was the worst. We'll, we'll, be, not, we'll be diplomatic here. But what was the one that maybe wasn't so hot? So your best virtual event and then one that wasn't as successful as hoped. We did a bourbon tasting that was phenomenal. So, and part of that came from the company that we partnered with to do it was kind of a one-stop shop. So they did everything. They pushed out the bourbon to people and they handled all of the shipping costs, which is, I mean, in a film marketing position, that's another thing that, you know, usually we're small, but mighty teams, right? So if we're the ones that are having to pack and ship and do all of that, it can be difficult again to scale. So looking for those great partners that we can partner with that can do that work for us is really, really helpful in our in our world. And so we had found a partner that was willing to kind of do all the work for us. But the best part about it was the packaging, right, was cute. And they yes. all came in these little glass bottles and they were like, you know, so it was very cute, like put together. And then the expert that they had brought on to do the tasting after the content was able to really weave in parts of the conversation of bourbon tasting. Who knew that you could <laughs> you could tie digital security to bourbon, but you can. And so he was super engaging and really knowledgeable. And I think that was probably our most successful virtual event we did. Awesome. Do you want to shout out the agency or the organization that was helping you out there? I don't know if you want to give them a free plug or not. It's up to you. I actually did not plan that myself. I attended it because my team planned it. So I don't know. I, I can't ah. remember. I'd have to reach out to my team to, okay. to get the name of that. You know, We're going to shout out that anonymous agency. You guys did a great job. Um, and then what was, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to really drive revenue for them. What was one that wasn't so, wasn't so great? Yeah. So this one, I actually do know the name of the agency, but yeah. I'm not going to say let's, it. Let's, let's not that do that. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. This one was a wine tasting, but... The wine that they sent was poor to quite poor quality and it was not received well. And, you know, we were only able to get, I think part of it was we were only able to get like four or five people to attend. So it wasn't enough to really have that healthy environment. It just kind of felt like, like two of these people are from our company and then there's three prospects and, you know, it just, it just, it didn't go well. So I think it really is hit or miss. And it is about trying to find that middle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How will new insights about virtual events and things you learn from virtual events, how will that inform how you manage, you know, events and field marketing in the future? Digital events are a really important part of a full strategic mix. I think before we were forced to do virtual events, there weren't many that were produced. I mean, maybe you have a few webinars generally or product demos that you put out there, but real kind of thought leadership digital events, I think, was something that was rare. And I now think it's integral. It's integral to a good marketing mix. And I'll tell you why. Because I think just like how 
in-person events went away and now they're back and they're an integral part as well because you need to have that relationship building experience. You want to do geographically focused events, right? Where you're getting people from one area together and you're focusing on something that resonates with them, whether that's an industry vertical that you're targeting or whatever's happening in the world around that area, you know, that you want to bring into the hill to try and drive whatever special thing is happening, whether it's a sports game or something like that. It really depends on what you're, what you're trying to achieve, right? Are you trying to reach that executive? Are you trying to go further down the funnel? Are you trying to close pipeline or create pipeline? There's all these things that come into play, right? So I believe it sits right up in there with trying to build top of the funnel pipeline and getting out to a brand new audience. Because let me tell you, somebody is much more willing, even with webinar fatigue, to tune in digitally from their desk for 20 minutes than they are to to spend their evening away. Now, I will say, that we're experiencing a little bit of a surge right now in terms of physical events. And with the Delta variant, it's going to be kind of choppy, I think, Mm -hmm. as it goes. But as people start to get more and more comfortable and things start to get more and more assured, we've seen some of the physical events that are coming back on the Hill getting record registration levels because people just want to get out of the house. You know, I mean, and so I think a company is really kind of missing out if they don't take advantage of this because it will not last forever. And it will go back to the place where it's hard to get people to leave their families for an evening, especially if you're doing something or to leave their work for lunch or whatever it is that you're trying to plan. So it really is about making it relevant and making it special. And I think that you can do that digitally and you can do it in person. There's a period of time here, and I, and I don't know what when that period of time is. I had a crystal ball. I don't know if I'd be doing field marketing, but I think there is a period of time here coming up where there's going to be just this huge demand to get back to in-person experiences. I think we're a little bit delayed right now because of the Delta barrier, but my point being, and I think you kind of hit upon this with the record registration comment, is you kind of have to strike while the iron is hot. If you don't do it, you're going to be missing out. And to your point again, I think... If you don't strike with the iron aside and then you're behind the eight ball to a degree, well, I don't feel like coming out for another field. And I went out for like three field events this fall or this past winter. I, I'm not really that into it. You know, thanks, but no thanks. I did that already with company so-and-so. So it's kind of a, listen, I'm not advocating for people to be go full-throated here. That's everybody's personal decision and company's decision and policy. But there's going to be a period of time here where you have to strike while the iron is on. And if you miss, it's going to be, I think, to, to the company's detriment. I'd love to talk a little about, again, our original topic, again, we've been talking about a lot of stuff here, but, you know, kind of reimagining the role of field marketing here. And, you know, as we hopefully approach, I don't want to say the end of the pandemic, but hopefully as we come out of this sooner than later, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how you think things have changed for field marketers as a whole. I think the tendency for field marketing is going to be to try to go back to the way things were. And I think, That's a miss. So what I will say is, this kind of goes back to an earlier comment I made about field marketing doing events and everybody thinking events is what field marketing is. I think that field marketing as a function can do just about anything, right? I think we can do content. I think we can do webinars. I think we can do blog posts. I think we can do reporting and analysis. I think the key functionality for field marketing is, as you mentioned, it's that real interlink. And I think the hard part for COVID is for companies who are of a size in which they have two different demand gen functionalities, 
So in some companies, field marketing is your demand gen yep. functionality. You have people who are building content. You maybe have digital marketers in terms of placing SEO and SEM, maybe, but field marketing can also do that. <laughs> There's a clearly defined line of this is the team that goes and executes. Now we have the strategy, we build the strategy, we have the products, we have the content. Now this team is going to build the strategy for how to get that content out to the marketplace in a way that makes sense and coordinating with sales to better understand. But in organizations where there are two functions focused on demand gen, so at Entrust, there was an integrated marketing team and a field marketing team. And the integrated marketing team kind of was on the side of product, right? So product marketing or product development would work with integrated marketing to help build campaigns to try and drive demand. Field marketing would partner with sales and would try and drive demand through sales. And the idea was these two teams would talk and work together, right? But when the pandemic hit, you've now got two teams that only have one avenue to get to the marketplace. Cue hundreds of webinars, (laughs) hundreds, right? And you're planning and field marketing is trying to do what they need to do for sales. And oftentimes the salespeople have very defined ideas of the content they want to present or needs to be presented to their vertical or their marketplace, whatever it is they're serving. And the product team has a very different idea. They want to talk about their products, right? They want to talk about like why you should have us. Whereas sales is usually wanting to talk like what we can do for you. Like what's your problem and how are we solving it? And so it's two very different focused conversations, but at the same time, you maybe have one vehicle, whether it's WebEx or whether it's Bright Talk or whatever vehicle you're using to get content out via digital platform, and you're now competing against, and it's creating some confusion and some. And so I think to answer your question about what's the new normal for film, I think the challenge for field marketers and field marketing is to figure out the role they play, regardless of the environment they're in, and making sure that those like roles are clearly defined at an organizational level so that everybody clearly knows where they are supposed to be. Yeah, I think there's some value that could be derived from that. So I've given this talk a lot of times, and I've, I've said this to a number of different people, both here at Splash and elsewhere. But we're not just event planners, right? And I think we both envision our teams, current teams, future teams to be moved or be perceived beyond the events planner, events team moniker. How do field marketing leaders like yourself ensure that the team is seen as, and we've heard this term a few times before, but how do field marketing leaders ensure that the team is seen as the CMOs of the region, not just the events people? What can they do as the leadership to ensure that that is taking place? I think it's all about relationship building at a fundamental level and then setting the strategy into place. So the way that I tried and attempted to do it when I was at Entrust was to first really build very successful relationships with sales leadership. Because I knew if I could get Phil Casper, the head of our global sales, and Patrick Steele, who's the head of our America sales, to really be on board with like the strategy I was setting and where I was going in the organization, then they would help. They would help to drive my message home. And it's finding those people in the organization. They may be in sales. They may not be in sales. They may be upwards in marketing, your CMO or whatever, who believes in the vision. That influence piece is almost, if not higher than same as that resilience piece. 
it's the ability to be able to clearly define your messaging and what you're looking to do and how you can accomplish it to an audience and convince them that it's the best. So I guess there is a lot of sales involved in film yeah, marketing. There is. You're selling the role for sure. The other thing I wanted to get your thoughts on is there is this desire from the sales team, I think, the sales organizations, I should say, sales, success, revenue, however you want to find that, to return to in-person events. You know, how should field marketing teams specifically approach this as they've been tasked, I personally believe, and I, and I think you would agree with me, how should they approach this as they've been tasked with becoming more full-stack marketers in the last 20 months? How can they balance the, again, the request to do all these in-person events versus, hey, let's let's think about things a little bit more strategically. Let's think about things a little bit more holistically. Yeah, I think the full piece of it is doing the back-end work on that so that you can be educated when you're talking to people about that. Because the, the last place you want to be is in a place to say no and have somebody go, well, why not? And then you don't really have a good answer for why not. I think it's best to be able to like understand what you're trying to drive first, what your budget is. So that's going to be a big determination, right? And how much people you have to execute. If you're one person, if you're two people, if you're three people, you can only do so much, right? So then you have to focus on the strategic initiatives of the company and how to get the bang for your buck. So the way that I solve the problem, and I think the nice thing is, is as we go back in, we can be choosy. In the olden time, it was like, we need to do this now. And we need to do so many of them. And we didn't really have a leg to stand on. But now that we're coming back out of COVID, we can be super choosy. We can be like, hmm, let's try a couple of these and see how they work. Or let's try this one and see what it does for us and kind of tippy toe back into the water, so to speak. And because of COVID, we have that fortune to be able to do that. But we also have the time to be able to look and do that, as I was mentioning before, that kind of backwards planning. So if I have to drive a a million dollars in pipeline, so to speak, I know that based on historical fact and looking at the analysis, that means that I need to drive 65 MQ, you know, SQLs. And to get 65 SQLs, I need a thousand MQLs, whatever your conversion rate is, right? You're looking back at that to be able to say, okay, if I'm going to drive a thousand MQLs and I'm one person, I can only do four events. I mean, without going crazy. So that means I need to do bigger events because I've got to drive more interest, right? So I can't do the smaller events. The other conversation happens with sales in terms of what's your goal? Is your goal meeting new people? that have never heard of our company, if that's the case, then that's a specific type of strategy. Like, I mean, you can't just do events. You're not going to meet enough people. You've got to drive out that SEO, that SEM, that high funnel activity so that you can bring those people into your world to even learn about who you are. Because if they don't know you, they're not coming to your event. That's for sure. However, if the goal is I've got like 500,000 sitting in stage one pipeline and I need to close it and I don't know how to get there. Well, then you have a completely different strategy that you put yep. into place that includes ABM and warming and making people feel special and, you know, creating attack plans that are specific for those pipeline opportunities. It's a completely different strategy. So the, the key piece, I think, for field marketing is do the homework, do the homework and understand what it is you're trying to achieve and what you have in terms of resources and money to be able to get there. And then that will define your strategy. That was good, Natasha. I'm impressed. I'm, I actually... I'm going to take all that, apply it, and pretend that you never said it, even though we're recording this. It's my own <laughs> ideas. No. Let's say in 10 words or less, kind of goes back to this conversation we've been having a little bit here about reimagining the role of field marketing here. In 10 words or less, can you, you know, summarize what the idealized version of field marketing looks like in your mind? To build a strategic plan that drives pipeline 
while inspiring sales to have special conversations with prospects <laughs> and customers. We'll let you workshop that, but I think I I, I hear. What I you're need saying. to workshop it a little bit. That's true. So, I need to uh, give me some time because I can turn it into a Hamilton song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've grabbed a lot of your time. I want to wrap up. We have some rapid fire questions. So this is a little like James Lipton's Inside the Actor. Is it James Lipton's? Oh, yes. Inside the Actor series where like he gives you like mm-hmm. five or six questions. So like one word answers if possible or, you know, short phrases, I suppose. So here mm-hmm. it goes. What is the hardest part about what you do as a field marketer? People. Mm. What is your favorite part about what you do as a field marketer? People. Ooh, good one. I like that. If you could send a Slack or text message to every field marketer in the world today, what would it say? Conquer the world. Lastly, where can people find you or follow you online? Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Give them a few handles so they they know where to keep up with you. Yeah, I'm super old. So like LinkedIn and (laughs) Facebook are like the only platforms that I'm on, to be honest with you. Like I have a very pathetic Instagram that I never post anything to. So LinkedIn is is primarily probably it. Mm-hmm. All right. So what we'll do, we'll include your LinkedIn information so people can connect with you or message you if they have any questions or thoughts or just want to share how wonderful you are as a podcast guest. So that concludes today's episode. I love chatting with you. I wish we had much more time, but we both got to do different things. I'm sure you have, I think you have probably two kids to go take care of right? or you know whatever you have to do at this point. Yes, I have to day. pick them up from daycare. Like oh, now. okay. Well, like, let me, <laughs> let me let you go then. But again, thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and our audience. Have a good day. All right. Take care. Thanks, Billy. All right. Bye. Bye. True Stories of Field Marketing is a production of Splash, an event marketing platform that makes your events measurable, on-brand, beautiful, and easier than ever. You can enjoy True Stories of Field Marketing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. I am Billy Bonson. We'll see you next time.